when I when I entered it the first time, it struck me, wow, I had no idea this was between my ears. You know, the mind had gone into this state where what I was experiencing, and because I'm very visual, was seeing a space without any limits. It was quite striking. Brasington began practicing meditation in 1985 and is the senior American student of the late Venerable Ayakema. Lee began assisting Venerable Ayakema in 1994 and began leading retreats on his own in 1997. He is also authorized to teach by Jack Cornfield. Today he teaches in Europe and North America and is the author of the book Right Concentration, a practical guide to the jhanas. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit providencezen.org. So Lee, I'm I'm wondering if you can tell us how you got started, why you were called to this particular path. Well, that first retreat with I came in 1985, uh, well, let's just say by the end of it, I wasn't particularly good at meditation, but I kept at it. And by three years later, I uh, was doing okay at following my breath when I attended a retreat at Ajahn Buddha Dasa's monastery in southern Thailand. And this was a retreat that was oriented towards mindfulness of breathing. And on the fourth day of that retreat, I stumbled into the space that was just full of all this energy and joy, uh, rapture and happiness, glee and excitement. They could tell me that what I was experiencing was called piti. Uh, all I know is that I went from meditating because I knew it was good for me to meditating because I wanted to meditate. Uh, I continued to have access to the PT, not all the time, but when I would go on retreat, it would certainly be there, and I could bring it home with me for some amount of time. And I began asking teachers, okay, so I get all this PT, what am I supposed to do with it? And you know, I don't remember what anybody said, because whatever they said, it didn't match my experience, and being hard-headed, I sort of ignored them. Until... I sat with Ayakema again, and at that first interview with her, she asked, well, tell me about your meditation. And I said, well, I can get to Piti. And she said, oh, good. That's the first jhana. Here's how you do the second. Somebody knew what was going on and furthermore knew what comes next. By the end of that 10-day retreat, I had learned jhanas two through five and realized that Ayakema was my teacher. I sat with her a year later, a longer retreat. This one was five and a half weeks. I had learned jhanas five, six, seven, eight. 
And then she put me to work uh, basically doing insight practices in the post-Jonic state of mind. And the insights I got were far more profound than anything I had experienced in the previous six years of practice. You know, before we go on, I, I love that line, Jonic state of mind. But before we go on, how did you even get to this retreat in 1985? Like, what was driving you to, <laughs> to get there? Okay, in 1984, I screwed up my knees, went running one day when I was in a bad mood. Not a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was eventually seeing a massage therapist who was a student of Ruth Dennison. And Ruth was a meditation teacher in Southern California. And the massage therapist said to me, you should take up meditation. It'd be good for you. And I said, yes, because that's what people told. I, I said to people that told me I should take up meditation. And then eventually she comes back and says, well, there's going to be a retreat. You should sign up. And since I was unemployed and didn't have anything else going on, I signed up and off I went, thinking I had meditated before. But when I arrived at Aya's retreat, I realized, oh, her idea of meditation is not what I've been doing. So it was really sort of stumbling around in the dark and winding up with this absolutely brilliant teacher. It's so funny because, you know, when I interview other people, they usually say something like, oh, I had this big question that was just driving me. I felt this great separation. And you're like, yeah, my knees were screwed up. And somebody said, you, you need some help. <laughs> <laughs> it was like other people saw you and decided you needed help. Right, exactly. And then exactly. you ended up on this amazing path. Right. Yeah, How I never set out to do yeah, I never set out to do anything like this. I, I mean, I went on the retreat mostly because I was curious about meditation. I, I wasn't interested in Buddhism. I mean, that was a religion. My father was a Presbyterian minister, and so I got a big dose of, well, we should say literalist Christianity growing up. And then uh, about the time I graduated from high school, I realized that, yeah, no one in the art, Daniel and the Lion's Den, that was just more Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. So I rejected all that, and I wasn't interested in religion. That's Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. And then on this retreat, Ayakema says, oh, you don't have to believe anything. You just need to come and see for yourself. Yeah. And that was like, what? Just, just explore? Okay, I can do that. Yeah, that is truly one of the great parts of the practice. Yeah, it's what got me into it. I, I love it when the teachers are saying, like, don't believe me. Yeah. Go find it for yourself. Exactly. Right. So you, uh, you went on this retreat. You met this teacher who um, just had this great luck to find. Mm -hmm. And then you, you started the practice with the jhanas, which, which is probably a term a lot of people are unfamiliar with. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more. Now, the jhanas come in. To, to the sort of scheme of it all, the, into the, the matrix of it all, in the last, in the eighth practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. Correct. So if that's right concentration or right samadhi, mm -hmm. and there are, in there, there are eight of them as well. Am I getting that right? Actually, in the suttas, right concentration only mentions four. The <gasps> 
the suttas, the earliest material we have, talks about four jhanas and four immaterial states. And it was in later Buddhism, uh, let's say a, a few hundred years after the Buddha, that basically they started calling it the eight jhanas as opposed to the four and the four. Uh-huh. But but the sequence of the four jhanas followed by the four immaterial states is fairly common in the suttas. And yes, uh, it would be considered right concentration. So what is it? What is the jhanas, and how do they how do they work? Okay. How do you work with students in their practice, or how how do you do it in your practice? Okay, so the the jhanas are these eight altered states of consciousness that are brought on by concentration and yield even more concentration. In other words, you build up a basic level of concentration, usually going by the name access concentration, which is sufficient to give you access to the first of the jhanas. Entering it, you achieve more concentration, which is enough to get you to the second of the jhanas, which gives you more concentration, which gives you enough to get to the third, etc. And you move through these states going into deeper and deeper levels of concentration. The whole idea being that once you are jhanically concentrated, you step out of practicing jhanas and begin doing insight practice with your jhanically concentrated mind. Mm. And stepping through the jhanas, one of the things that happens is that you really shut down your ego construction. I'm assuming most people listening to this are aware that they have to make themselves up, they have to think themselves up or invoke themselves up. It's not a little guy sitting there behind the eyeballs looking out. And so in doing this one-pointed concentration, you are no longer putting energy into creating a sense of self. You're just simply experiencing these states. And when you step out of it, uh, you're looking at the world from a much less egocentric perspective, which gives you a much better chance of seeing what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Now, the states themselves are interesting. The first of them, uh, there's PT and also Sukha. Uh, PT is this energetic uh, pleasure, perhaps best translated as glee, and Sukha is joy or happiness. And it's a pretty intense experience. Uh, you can take a nice deep breath, calm down the physical component, and focus on just the emotional joy or happiness, and this will take you to the second jhana, where the physical is in the background and the joy happiness is the object of your attention in the foreground. You can move on from that to a quieter state where the physical has calmed down completely and the joy happiness has become contentment, satisfaction. Satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger were practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. Hmm. And then the fourth jhana, you let go of the pleasure of satisfaction, contentment, and let your mind sink down to a place of quiet stillness. Uh, It appears from the suttas that coming out of the fourth jhana, you have a mind that's, well, it's described as concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, valuable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, which you direct and incline to knowing and seeing. In other words, a mind state perfect for doing insight practice. Mm. So what does this look like, you know, in the practice, right? So there's, 
I know that it's it's hard to sort of t- say. <laughs> <laughs> well, so but, you know that was a lot of words, and I'm wondering like what all of that means to to practitioners or or me- meant to you better. Well, for me at first, what it meant was stumbling into this pleasant state. It was much more interesting than just following my breath. So it didn't really have the kind of meaning that was intended. And it was only when I studied with Ayakima later and she explained to me, oh, yeah, this is a warm-up exercise for your insight practice. So what does it look like? I sit down. Uh, you know, I do my preliminaries of generating some gratitude, getting in touch with my motivation, uh, do a little metta, loving-kindness practice, and then I put my attention on my breathing. And my mind wanders off, and I bring it back, and my mind wanders off, and I bring it back, and that goes on for a while till my mind settles down. And when it settles down, I'm no longer getting lost. That's access concentration. Mm-hmm. So... You know, some sits, it never happens. I never get the access. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's like there's only one distraction. It lasted the whole 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, other times, yeah, maybe I spend 15 minutes wandering around and it all of a sudden settles. And now I got you know, some good time. Other yeah. times, maybe it doesn't settle until it's near the end of the sitting. But after it settled, then I let it stay in this quiet, space of access concentration where there might be thoughts in the background, but they don't pull me into distraction. And I know each in-breath and each out-breath. And then eventually when I want to trigger the jhana, I shift my attention away from the breath and find a pleasant physical sensation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pleasant physical sensation that works best for me is the sensation of the smile. I can just put my attention on the smile. You notice Buddha statues have a little smile. That's that's a teaching. It's not just artistic. You smile when you meditate. It makes it much easier to get to the jhanas. Mm. Other people find that the pleasant sensation is in their hands or their heart center or their third eye. But you just shift your attention away from your access method like the breath to this pleasant sensation. And if you do nothing else but enjoy the pleasantness of the pleasant sensation, it will set up a positive feedback loop of pleasure and off you go into the first jhana with all this rapture and happiness, glee and joy. So it looks like just a normal sort of meditation until you shift to the pleasure, and then this state comes and takes you over. And then you hang out there a bit and move on to the next, and stair-step your way down to these deeper levels of concentration. Mm. And so... The jhanic states of mind are there as sort of disciplines that help you um, sort of clue into who you are, that, that they're prepping you for insight. Is that right? Yeah, I would, I would say each of the jhanas does have some insight associated with it. Uh, for the first one, if you want the state, you can't have it mm-hmm. because the wanting gets in the way. The wanting you know, starts being a distraction. Where's my jhana? Well, anytime you think bad, you're not just focused on getting quiet. So there are insights that come with each of the jhanas, but the real advantage is they put you in a state that's really quiet and less egocentric. So when you begin doing your insight practice, whatever that may be, you have a much better chance of seeing what's actually happening. And for people who are familiar, or who are who are unfamiliar with insight practice, what 
What do you mean by that? Some method that allows you to explore reality in a way that gives you insight into one of the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, anicca being the inconstant, impermanent nature of reality, dukkha being the unsatisfactory nature, ultimately unsatisfactory, and anatta being the coreless or empty nature of phenomena. On that first retreat with Ayakema, she first put me to work investigating dukkha. Now, in Buddhism, they talk about the three types, three personality types, uh, the greedy type, the aversive type, and uh, the deluded type. Oh, I'm a greed type, and greed types don't do real well in, uh, investigating dukkha. I mean, we just <laughs> want to go find pleasure. So yeah. Aya was pretty sharp. She realized that having me investigate dukkha wasn't going all that well. So then she switched me to paying attention to basically just arising and passing run through my jhanas and open up my attention and pay attention to anything I notice that arises, sounds, smells, mind states, my breath, and anything that passes. Again, sound, smells, breath, whatever is arising, whatever is passing. And just pay attention to that. So I'm noticing the impermanent nature of all the phenomena, both while I'm sitting and then when the bell rings, I continue to pay attention to arising and passing. It's not like the practice is over when the bell rings. You know, I'm doing walking meditation and I'm paying attention to arising and passing. I'm eating, I'm paying attention to arising and passing. I'm, I was a little taken back by the phrase, I run through the jhanas. What does that mean? <laughs> so when I had learned all eight of the jhanas, I was just having so much fun. It was a 45-minute sit and I would step through them. I would get to the first one and hang out a little bit and go to the second, hang out a little bit, work my way all the way up to the eighth one, and then work my way back down to the first one. And that would take about 45 minutes. So I go into an interview with Aya after I'd gotten fairly good at this. And she says, okay, now it's time for you to do insight practice in the same city. And I said to her, but it takes so long to go up and back down. She says, do them faster. Uh, now, Ayakema was not the type of person that you wanted to argue with. It was just like, yes, ma'am, I'll try that. And she also indicated that I didn't need to come back down, just run them up to eight and then step out of that and start doing my insight practice. And when the insights started coming in, and they did, I mean, I was just blown away. Uh, it was like the jhanas were like, all right, let's just run through this stuff and get onto the insight practice and see what I can find next. The the excitement about the jhanas was gone, and now it was all excitement about what else can I learn about reality, which is far more interesting than getting high. I mean, I enjoyed the getting high bit, but learning what was actually happening was transformative. But you have really become a teacher known for the jhanas, so you must have circled back around because you saw something in that that you wanted to sort of help people with. Is that correct? <laughs> or... Not really. It's, uh -huh. Yeah, I saw something I wanted to help people with. I saw right. how useful they were. I saw how once I'd learned them and did insight practices that I had done before, right. how much more effective these insight practices were. And so I wanted to share that with other people. But I'm known for teaching the jhanas because people don't teach jhanas and anybody who teaches jhanas suddenly gets known for teaching the jhanas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But right. on a 10-day retreat, 
I'm going to give 18 talks and three are going to be on the jhanas. Oh. And the rest are going to be, on, most of the rest are going to be on the inside. There's going to be some on the precepts. So a little bit of sila, ethics, and a little bit on concentration, three talks on the jhanas. And the rest is going to be on, yeah, anicca, dukkha, anatta, you know, four noble truths, uh, dependent origination, not self, uh, things like that. Why do you think people don't teach the jhanas if they're so helpful for getting to, to well, practice? The, the easy answer is you have to be crazy to want to teach jhanas. <laughs> Why? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to teach to retreat. I got 24 people in the room. Uh-huh. And I know there are going to be people who are not going to experience jhanas. I'm going to put out this very tantalizing and interesting sounding phenomena that people can access. Right. And it's not going to be for everyone. So I've got to teach a retreat that even those who don't experience the jhanas feel like they got their money's worth, their time's worth. I was spending 10 days on retreat with me. So it's, it's a pretty big challenge. Furthermore, to teach jhanas, basically the first morning of the full day, I give the instructions for the first jhana. I say, go try it out. And then I do one-on-one interviews, uh, 20 to 30-minute one-on-one interviews. So on a 10-day retreat, everybody's going to get three one-on-one interviews. I mean, I'm going to do 72 interviews yeah. in eight days. That's, yeah. that's a, a lot. lot. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's a lot more work to teach jhanas than simply, you know, show up, tell people, follow their breath, and then you know, <laughs> do, do group interviews. Group interviews for jhana practice are completely worthless. Yeah. Because all you'll do is generate comparing mind, because in any group, there's going to be one person who's doing really well, and there's going to be several people. It's not happening for yet, and they're like, what's wrong with me? Well, you know, that's, right. not how, that's not helpful. So it's difficult to teach jhanas, and you've got to deal with the fact that you've got to have a retreat that's so good that if students don't experience jhanas, they're still pleased with their experience. Right. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that yet. Group interviews about the jhanas is just going to make people jealous. Yeah, it's completely, <laughs> it's completely useless. Yeah. It's actually a negative. So you've got to do one-on-one interviews. Right. It's your only choice. Now, it sounds, for those who do encounter the jhanas, who, who really can find this teaching really resonates with them and, or they have access to them, mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like it can also be you know, quite a powerful experience, very embodied yeah. uh, and powerful experience. And I'm, I'm wondering... Um, if that can bring up unresolved issues. <laughs> At the beginning of every retreat, I give two warnings. The first warning is you have, if you have any expectations of experiencing the jhanas, you're in big trouble. Uh, expectations are the worst thing you could possibly bring on any retreat. Well, right. Bring on in any situation, but especially on a retreat. So you just got to do the practice and see what happens. Uh, I tell the students, you know, if you're, if you're trying to go from uh, San Francisco to Boston and somebody gives you the instructions and you start looking for Boston before you get out of your driveway, <laughs> yeah. it's not going to work. You've got you to know where you are, what landmark you're looking for and what to do when you get to that landmark. Well, it's the same with the John instructions. 
Okay. And if you start expecting, then you're looking for balsam. Right. So that's first warning. The second warning is no, if you have any unresolved psychological issues and you start fooling with concentration, those unresolved psychological issues might show up. Uh, and it, you don't even have to get to the jhanas. You just start trying to get concentrated. And yeah, unresolved stuff can show up. And it happens every single retreat. And I tell the students, yeah, you're going to have these interviews and I want to know what's happening in your practice. And if your unresolved stuff is coming up, I guess that's what we got to talk about. Right. That's one of the scariest things about teaching because, you know, I made my living as a computer programmer, you know, not as a psychotherapist or anything. Right. Right. Hmm. There was a line in your book, it's right in the beginning, where it says the jhanas are controversial. Yes. And why, why is that? Why are they controversial? Well, what appears to have happened is that over time, the understanding of exactly what states actually are the jhanic states kept oh. changing. Yeah. Okay, so there's what's described in the suttas, and then you read what's described in the Abhidhamma, which is from, let's say, 200 years later, and it's very clear the states have a deeper level of concentration than what's described in the suttas. Uh And then you read the Vasudhimaga, and now we're talking eight or 900 years after the Buddha, and you find states that are, well, they're so deeply concentrated that almost nobody can get to them. In fact, the Vasushimaga actually says, of those who come to meditation, at best, one in a million people can get to the first jhana. It doesn't actually phrase it like that, but that's the mathematical implications of what it says. So there's the controversy of what exactly are these states, plus because the Vasudhimaga became the Bible for Theravada Buddhism, uh, and almost nobody could do the Vasudhi Maga jhanas. They had to come up with something else. And the something else is what they call dry insight practice, where you don't need jhanas. And so the people who aren't teaching jhanas are saying, you don't need jhanas. Right. So there's a whole controversy of whether actually working on deeper levels of concentration is useful or not. However, if you read the suttas, one, you find that yeah, the Buddha all over the place is recommending Clean up your act, concentrate your mind, investigate reality. And it's it's just it's it's everywhere. That's that's his whole teaching, Sila Samadhi Panya. And the suttas he's the jhanas he's describing in the suttas are not these one in a million inaccessible states. But Theravadan Buddhism is looking at the Vasudhimaga as its guide, so it's looking at jhanas as these inaccessible states. So when I am teaching states that are accessible, people are going, hey, you're not teaching the real thing. Yeah. Well, okay, I admit I'm not teaching what's in the Vasudhimaga, but since most people can't do what's in the Vasudhimaga, they're absolutely <laughs> useless. Right. You know, uh, I remember reading someplace that said that one of the most useless things in the world is one way behind the plane you're trying to land. It's inaccessible, Right. Same thing with inaccessible jhanas. If you can't access them, no matter how good they are, they're completely useless. What I'm teaching is something that 
lay people who are willing to go on a 10-day, two-week retreat have a, a, a reasonable chance of learning. Not everyone, as I said, but a, enough people to make it worthwhile for me to teach some retreats and for people to see, yeah, is this something that actually I can do that will benefit my practice? So you've talked about the first four jhanas. What, what are the other four jhanas like? Well, they're actually quite different from the first four. The first four are sometimes called the uh, fine material jhanas in the sense that not that they are material, but because in the material world, we all experience glee, happiness, contentment, and quiet stillness. But these other four states, the immaterial states, are really quite different. The fifth one is goes by the name of infinite space. The realm of boundless space would be perhaps the most accurate translation. And it's the experience of, well, space without any boundaries. It can be accessed from the fourth jhana by coming out of the fourth jhana and then imagining something that you can expand without limit. What Ayakema told me was the boundaries of my being. She said, fill the room, fill the meditation hall, fill the retreat center, build the top of the hill that we were on, just keep expanding to the horizon and keep going. And if you can do the expansion, eventually an infinite space appears before you. Uh, at that point, drop the sense of expansion and focus on the space. So it's a, yeah, it's a really, the best I can say, it's like you're walking across the Arizona desert and you come to the Grand Canyon. Only when you look in, there's no bottom and there's no far side. It's just huge space. Mm. Uh, when, when it struck, when I, when I entered it the first time, it struck me, wow, I had no idea this was between my ears. You know, the mind had gone into this state where what I was experiencing, and because I'm very visual, was seeing a space without any limits. Mm. It was quite striking and very subtle. Uh, you, know, you start thinking, wow, this is really cool, and it goes away. But once you get <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Once you get steady with it, then you can move on to the sixth, which is called infinite consciousness, or the realm of limitless consciousness. And the trick there is to shift your attention from the space which you would experience before you to your awareness of that space. Become conscious of your consciousness. And if you can make that shift, you find that your consciousness is as big as that space. And there's no longer you as separate from, well, your consciousness. You are this infinite consciousness. It's a subtle shift, but once you get skilled at it, it's, yeah, quite, quite interesting. Your mind has become infinite. Yeah. The seventh jhana is the realm of nothingness. And the trick for that is to recognize that the sense of space is long gone and that you really can't find any content to this consciousness. There's nothing there. And you put your attention on the nothing. And what you wind up with is that your mind is focused on nothing. Sort of like you go into the basement 
and you hit the light switch and it doesn't work and you're trying to see what's there. And as your eyes grow accustomed, you see there's nothing right in front of me. Why there's nothing over there. There's nothing. Why there's nothing down here at all. It's that kind of nothing. It's not emptiness. All right. That's a more profound state. But this is just nothing. Absolutely nothing. People who stumble into this state, and people do stumble into any of these jhanas unintentionally, but people who stumble into the realm of nothingness unintentionally usually get quite freaked out because it feels like they've fallen into the void. Uh, I know this because I've had students come on retreat and say to me, well, I was on this retreat and, and I fell into the void. And I get them to describe it and I say, well, yeah, it sounds like the seventh jhana, the realm of nothingness. And go, it was really scary. So eventually, they learn the first six, and I say, okay, now here are the instructions for seven. And they're like, I don't know if I want to go back there. Right. And I say, no, no, it'll be fine. And they go off, and three days later, they come back for the next interview, and they're like, yeah, yeah, this is right where I was, only this time it wasn't scary. The only reason it was scary was because they didn't know what was going on. Once you know what's happening, it's a great place to hang out. There's nothing that can bother you. It says nothing. Right. And then the eighth, John, goes by the name of neither perception nor non-perception. And it's a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. It doesn't even have nothing. Uh, it's just that your mind is in this state that doesn't have any characteristics by which you can describe it, yet you can stay in this state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. Uh, it's very subtle. It's far more subtle than any of the previous states. Uh, you know, a, a single thought that contains the words I, me, or mine, and it's gone. Right. Uh, but when you come out of that, your mind is really, really quiet. And then you turn to investigating arising and passing or contemplating dependent origination or uh, doing Chikantaza or Zochen practice. I mean, you don't have to do a Theravadan insight practice. You could do any inside practice. It's going to be a lot more powerful. I love how sort of clear uh, the the teaching is. I think sometimes people get very intimidated. They get down on the cushion. It's so wide open. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a wall or there's whatever facing you. So <laughs> one level it feels very contained, but, you know, all of a sudden you you start trying to quiet your mind and it just becomes well it's like a some sort of wild mustang that just runs off forever and these sounds so you know the structure of them sounds so helpful yeah the first insight most people get is my mind has a mind of its own and you're you're still dealing with that to try and get to the jhanas but when your mind actually does settle down, then you actually can enter some very interesting states. And it's very systematic. It's Once you get skilled at it, it's mechanical. You can just crank out the concentration. And then you've got a great setup for doing your insight practice. If we could crank out wisdom the same way we could crank out concentration, you know, the planet would be in a lot better shape. But, uh, yeah, it's possible to sit down, work with yourself well enough so that you get settled, and then you get really settled. And then you start doing insight practice and see what shows up. Yeah, I really love the idea of, um, yeah, it's, it's almost like you're doing sort of training for a race. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And then, you know, race day shows up and, um, and you're able to just do, to do what you came to do. Yeah. 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 It's definitely, it's a skill to learn. And some people find it really easy and some people find it impossible. Uh, and I never can predict, you know, I have people fill out a, a form at the beginning of the retreat, you know, what's your meditation history, et cetera. And I, I read them. And at first I tried to figure out, okay, this person will do great. This person will do terrible. I could have just <laughs> thrown them up in the air. <laughs> Whatever came upside down, you know, right side up would have been just as good as sorting. Uh, I never know. You know, some people, it seems like they're so close and they might be so close for days and other people, boom, they're in right away. And some people, yeah, they never get close. It's interesting though. I would say half the retreats I've taught, the person who had the most profound retreat actually didn't get to the jhanas, but they dealt with some issue that came up in a really skillful way. So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that somehow the the discipline of it allowed them to, um, you know, have an encounter with, uh, you know, what is, um, in, a, in perhaps in a safer way and in like a contained way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. But there, I mean, there are other people that have stuff come up and it's just really difficult and it, yeah. you know, it doesn't resolve. And, you know, it's like, okay, when you go home, I, I suggest that you, you know, find a somatic experiencing uh, yeah. therapist you know, or something like that. Yeah. I think yeah. that was me three days ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God, I need to go back to bed. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. God. Anyways. <laughs> One of the things that's absolutely necessary for learning the jhanas is going at it with an attitude of relaxed diligence. And it turns out that's actually a very helpful attitude for almost anything you do on the cushion and actually for almost anything you do. Uh, but yeah, relaxed diligence where, yeah, you're really there, you're really doing the work, but you're sort of kicked back. If you get too result thinking focused, it's not going to work. So it's really important to have this attitude of relaxed diligence. And I guess the other thing I would say is the instructions to anybody on the spiritual path would be stop telling yourself stories. Pay attention to what's actually happening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Lee Brasington encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching by picking up a copy of his book, Right Concentration, a Practical Guide to the Jhanas. If you would like to sit a retreat with Lee, you can find his retreat schedule at leeb.com. That is L-E-I-G-H-B.com. Special thanks to our sponsor, the Providence Zen Center. If you would like to deepen your practice commitment, I encourage you to explore PZC's residential and retreat opportunities. You can find all of that information at ProvidenceZen.org. If you would like some guidance on how to meditate, there are some videos you can watch at ProvidenceZen.org videos. My name is Ian White-Marr. I hope you'll join me again next week.